I got an electric twit for Christmas. <laughs> Welcome to Goon Pod. My name is Tyler Adams, and this is the podcast dedicated to the Goon Show and the work of the Goons themselves, Salas Milligan, Seacom, and Benteen. Now, in December 1959, the final series of the Goon Show began, and it kicked off with an episode called A Christmas Carol. And as we're so close to the big day, I figured I should cover that episode, but then I thought, wait, that's what they'd be expecting me to do. So instead, today we're looking at the following episode. The Tale of Men's Shirts, and it is actually part one of a two-part special looking at the two shows which featured on the 1960 Parlophone LP, The Best of the Goon Shows, number two. Uh, joining me this week is my special guest, the actor Mike Fenton-Stevens. He's a very familiar face on TV and radio, appearing in shows such as Radioactive and its TV spin-off KYTV, uh, Benny Dorm, Only Fools and Horses, he's the groovy gang guy. Uh, Old Harry's Game, One Foot in the Grave, he plays Pippa's brother, uh, My Family, Nighty Night, Trevor's World of Sports, Spitting Image, and even Home James. And I'm kicking myself, I didn't ask him what it was like working with Jim Davidson. And he's currently riding high in the podcast charts with his show, My Time Capsule. Uh, we started talking briefly about the goons and then, weirdly, got on to Amadeus. In a way, the respect for the goons disappeared. It became a thing where they almost were regarded as old-fashioned unfairly quickly, I think. You know, people went... You know, Python has remained uh, revered by people. You, you say Python, and it, it, it almost has to be something that you go, well, yeah, of course, Python. Brilliant. Mm, Paris yeah. sketch. Yeah. And there were, there are wonderful, amazing moments in it. But also... Um, I'm not sure that any of their films really stand up anymore that they made. I don't think any of the programmes as programmes where you can watch and go, wow, you know, 40 Towers is a work of genius. There's no doubt about that. Almost every episode is is perfect. But I think that they were sort of thrown together. But strangely enough, the goons were thrown together by, you know, very quickly, written very quickly, performed very quickly, very little rehearsal. Uh, done in a very loose way, and yet there are whole episodes, and the one that we're going to talk about, I think, I mean, may well be possibly one of the most famous I've chosen, but I'd, I wouldn't know that. All I'd know is that it's the one that I listened to again and again and again when I was a child. Good. Well, <clears throat> we'll come to that in a moment. I just want to yeah. um, talk about you. Okay. My mate was telling me he saw you in Amadeus. Oh, really? Yes. You know, I have done. I've done straight stuff. Yeah. I've done lots of it, you know. I mean, and I've, I've constantly attempted to try and persuade people that I can be a serious actor. <laughs> and, uh, and I love it. I really like doing it. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Great production, Amadeus. Tim Pickett-Smith and Toya Wilcox, lovely Toya Wilcox yeah. playing um, Amad say, Mozart's wife. It was a very strange combination of people. I played one of the Venticelli, which is like the, they're sort mm -hmm. of like the chorus, mm -hmm. the Greek chorus, really, of, uh, of Amadeus. And it was, um, it was a fabulous experience. I mean, we had Peter Schaffer in rehearsals with us all the way through, uh, wow. even though it had been, you know, yeah. yeah. And at one point I said to him, I think there's a line missing here. And this was in the, uh, you know, the yeah. script that had been printed and had been used by everybody who'd done the production. And I, you do get to know your own part almost better than anybody else because you study your own part in such depth, learning the lines. You know, you read it again and again and again yes. and again. And if yes. there's something slightly odd about it that you can't make sense of, Eventually, you know, it's worth asking people, <laughs> is this right? Am I, being, am I learning something that's actually you didn't mean to be there? And luckily we had the writer there. So I did go over to him and say, is there a line missing here? And he went, well, let's have a look. Um, I don't know. I don't... I'll go back to the original manuscript. And the next day he brought in the original handwritten manuscript of Amadeus. And uh, he, he flicked through it and he went, oh, my God, yes. 
and there was a line missing. So every production up until that point had got it wrong. Oh, wow. Because you'd have thought with, with any other writer, it could be quite an in intimidating prospect going up and sort of tapping him yeah, on the chest I was, and saying... Uh, yeah, I was, I was a cheeky, <laughs> cheeky sod, I tell you. I'm, I've, I've been a cheeky sod all my life. I've never really uh, expected that anybody would be annoyed with me if my interfering meant that things got better. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, if you if you improve your own performance or what you're doing, that you know adds to the whole. So Absolutely. yeah, I, I you know, but I am an, an interferer in as much as I will do the thing that a lot of actors really hate. I mean, they hate people coming up and saying to them, "Have you thought about doing it this way?" Mm, and mm. I I don't mind that at all. I mean, generally, I say to them, "Yeah, I have." You know, I mean, so I would say, "But you know, I might have a go at it," but I don't mind it at all. Why? Why would you object to somebody else having an idea? There's that story about Leonard Rossiter. Mm. Um, and, and you've got a connection with Leonard Rossiter, of course, because you I were have, in yeah. um, the legacy of Reginald Perrin, which... Sadly, not with him. <laughs> which, yeah. which famously didn't have Leonard Rossiter. But there's that story of Leonard Rossiter where there was a line, I think it was The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, there was a line in the script that he didn't get on with. Yeah. And he, and he said to David Nobbs, I don't think this will get a laugh. I don't think this works. And I, and I wish I could remember what the line was, but David Nobbs insisted. He said, it's, it will kill them. It will kill the audience. They'll love it. Yeah. You know, and, and Rossiter was digging his heels and he was saying, no, no, I'm, I'm not happy. It's not going to get a laugh. It's going to be embarrassing. I think David Nobbs said, right, we'll try it. And if we don't get the right reaction, we'll just do it again. And so, you know, he said the line and the audience erupted. <laughs> and afterwards, David Nobbs took Leonard aside and said, see, I told you. And he said, Leonard Rossiter said, no, still didn't work. It was the wrong sort of audience. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know. They didn't get it. They didn't yeah, know they, what they were They were wrong. They, they were wrong. wrong. I was right. It isn't mm. funny. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. David Nobbs has told me that story himself. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so of can, I can verify it. I can say <laughs> that is absolutely true. Because I, I watched the Legacy Original Perrin when it aired. Didn't you have a ca catchphrase, which was something like Wicked. Something wicked like yeah it was <laughs> i always imagine it was groovy because i've said groovy lots of different characters but i know it was wicked yeah so basically they always had the three people who went um super smashing lovely and mm. they so they would always do that you know he would say so um, we're going to go uh you know we're going to we're going to march and they go oh super smashing lovely and he thought it was funny to put this fourth character in who just went wicked mm. and that's, that's <laughs> what i basically said through the whole the whole six episodes <laughs> said it a lot it was funny it was funny but um it was very interesting because i was i'd done a lot of comedy by that point and i'd done i'd worked with all sorts of uh different styles of comedy already mm. by that point and uh and this was it was a very sitcom style comedy yes but you know but it but at the same time the center of it it had these these really beautiful performances jeffrey palmer you know, just oh, well, a, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just amazing, amazing performer. Almost, always with the sense that you you think so. Well, oh, you'll you'll obviously do it in a way that you think is funny in front of the audience. You know, he's sort of done it, doing it as if as if he wasn't really trying. Mm. And in rehearsals, it that sometimes felt as if he was uh, letting the thing go for nothing. But actually, always in front of an audience, it worked brilliantly. It was a great lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. You know that you don't have to make something of every line jimmy's a fantastic comedy character isn't he jimmy the, isn't he just yeah. plays yeah uh, so I, I i grew up watching tv in the 80s and watching mainly comedy on tv in the 80s mm -hmm. and and you know i wouldn't i grew up probably seeing your face without knowing your name then, <laughs> because because i was a, i was in most of the comedy in, in the 80s yeah it's one of those things i would have known you first and foremost from only fools and horses from that episode which i don't want to dwell yeah. on because you're sick and tired of talking about that, I'm sure. Um, but I, <laughs> but I was a big fan, huge fan of things like um, Alas Smith and Jones. I know you appeared in a couple of those, and yeah, yeah, um, cropped up a, a, on those quite often actually. And, and also, yeah. even even though I was a bit too young, the unrepeatable Who Dares wins. Again, you, you, you weren't in every show. You were in a what, handful of those shows? Yeah, well, I mean, actually probably more than a handful. 
I think that quite often, because you know we were all mates and and they had these things to go on, you would you would quite often play sort of. I mean, there are a number of sketches where they need more than just the cast. So there's a sort of a you know there's a sketch with soldiers and you know, and quite often the songs they needed to be dressed up a bit and and filled out. So you'd be there, and but you'd be in some sort of costume or thing. So in fact, I can spot me, but um, but actually just me walking in as me and saying a line, it's unusual. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's a sketch about Vlad the Impaler where basically I'm um, I'm somebody stuck on a pole right in the middle <laughs> of the sketch, which was a very uncomfortable evening yes. I can remember. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but actually I did. They sort of went, you know, well you might as well come along, and it was great. It was uh, my start of my association with Andy Hamilton, who was uh, one of the main writers on it and also then produced it, you know. So, I mean, through doing those little tiny parts, I mean, it, it was one of those things where he developed a trust that, you know, if you just give Mike something to do, he'll do it. He, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And that's always a really, you know, I mean, particularly with small parts, I think. A, a badly played small part will ruin something. Uh, I absolutely love old Harry's game. Yeah, it's great. It's just where you had, and again, that's me and Phil Pope, you know, so Phil Pope was in Who Dares Wins and uh, and we did Radioactive together and then, you know, we did Spitting Image together and we've done loads and loads of different things over the years. But Andy have all, uh, Andy's always pulled me and, and Phil in to do <laughs> the other voices. You know, I mean, I, I am, I'm in uh, outnumbered more than anybody else apart from Hugh Dennis and Claire Skinner because I do all the voices for um, all the extraneous sounds that you hear on the program. <laughs> so, for example, if the television is on in the background, it's usually me right. going, oh, well, yeah, I don't know, just sort of sort of talking, but not. Yes. And then, you know, doing radio plays. So, you, you know, it was great. It's a great thing. I'd, you'd go in at the beginning of the series and you'd say, right, I need this in the background. Well, and also there's this where, you know, he's talking to a teacher, but there's an annoying bloke in the back who he keeps looking over his shoulder at. Can you do that? And I go, I, I know where well, I was. Uh, yes. Well, Peter's done so fantastically well. I, <laughs> and, and, it, and that's what you, it's great fun. Really good fun. That's good because you get to improvise. You do. I yeah. love improvising. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I like doing it. I always think of you. Um, and and uh, sadly, it's not a show that gets repeated anymore. But but I used to love it. It was God twenty odd years ago now. Yeah, people like us. Ah, it's a brilliant show. Uh, and actually, um, it's my one. It's the one I look back at and go, why, why? Um, everybody else who's played the named lead character in an episode of People Like Us is now mm. incredibly mm. famous. All mm. of them, every single person. Apart from me, are you getting there? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever. I'd probably never pursued it. That's been my problem. But you know, I'm not complaining. But I'm just saying that you know, I played the vicar in an episode called yes. The Vicar, and uh, and I it is, it's where I first worked with John Morton, who I think is a just a brilliant band, and he's married to Helen Atkinson Wood, who was also oh. radioactive. So I know yes. him very well and see him often. Yes. He's a lovely man, but I loved working with him. It's a. Uh, I have to say, I also, over the years, had worked with Chris Langham quite a lot, mm. and he's, you know, possibly one of the best comedy performers I've ever worked with. You know, mm. he he uh, he's a. It he was a comic genius, I think. Uh, he but he's a very troubled man. Mm. Mm. I've been rewatching uh, Spike Milligan's Q series. Oh, right, um, yeah. And and Chris Langham was a fresh faced young slip of a lad turning up yeah. on that um, yeah. he he was a, a guest on the muppet show for god's sake he was well he was a writer he was the main writer on the Muppets. Mm. yeah mm. and and the, the the reason for him being the guest is that the um the person who was supposed to come in from america to play that part uh, couldn't get there i think there was a, a strike or something and they could he couldn't fly over from america so they turned to chris and said well you know it you know this script, don't you? And he said, yeah, I wrote it. And they get, okay, you do it. <laughs> and yeah. so this completely unknown, completely yeah. unknown writer suddenly is, I guess, okay, I guess this week is uh, Chris Langham, hey! <laughs> and he goes, oh, hello, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, okay. And um, it's a lovely episode. I mean, it's a great shame. I mean, I, 
I, I was very fond of Chris Langerman. I still mm. am very fond of him, but he, he he was involved in things that sadly mean that you, you know, there we are. Well, it's very yeah. sad. With some friends, actually, I managed to watch, because I've, I've not seen it for years, your episode of People Like Us. Mm. And uh, I watched it the other night with some friends. And I'll tell you this, and I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to you. I've never heard them or very rarely heard them laugh so consistently as they did to that episode. Oh, that's lovely, because I'm very proud of it. I think it's a really great episode, I and mean, it's brilliantly written. It's brilliantly written. It's it, The cast is really lovely. I'm, I'm very... I mean, the scene, the practising the wedding scene in mm. that is, is one of the greatest pieces of writing I've ever been involved in. It's astonishing. And we had to work so hard to learn that. And every time we recorded it, uh, John Morton would say, who was directing it, would say, that was just... Great, absolutely perfect. You hit everything. You did every note that I gave you. Good. Now, can we do it and try and do it twice as fast? And <laughs> and it was. Uh, we spent a day just going, and you'd get to the end of the scene and go, "Wow, oh my god, I can't believe we did that." And he'd say, "Great, great. Yeah, have another go. Just a little bit faster if you can." And it, it, the pace of it is unbelievable. That's I guarantee. One of my friends actually said to that because he had seen the show before, as in yeah. um, people like us. So we, he knew what to expect. But he said the pace is amazing. It's, it is amazing, it's un, yeah. unrelenting, and it does it. It doesn't seem dated. It looks really fresh as well. Um, I know. I look at it and look at say, look at that young man playing the vicar. <laughs> but uh, the the thing is that that that's also that program has has provided me with the opportunity quite often to do really serious stuff. And the reason is that people have watched that comedy programme and, and as with everything with John Morton uh, and with all great writing, I think, comedy writing, there's, there are moments in it which are incredibly painful and really sad. And there's a moment in it where I, as the vicar, realise because of something that Chris's character off, off camera has said, that I don't, I realise that I don't believe in God, mm. and it, it's and it's a, it's absolutely devastating moment mm. for this person, mm. who everything about his life has to that moment has been fine, you know, and then suddenly he realises actually, do you know what? I no, you're right, I don't. You're right, yeah, yeah. It, and it's it's awful. You see him fall apart, and at that moment of me falling apart, which I you know I thought, well, I'd do my best, and uh, I've had several people just not even audition me, just say, do you want to play this part in this play? And I go, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. What made you think of me? And they say, oh, well, there's a thing called people like us that you did. And I go, all right, okay. Great. I know exactly what it is. They yeah. saw the, you know, they sort of go, well, if he can do that in a comedy show, then it's worth casting him in a serious thing. I just, I just wish that it was one of those things that was repeated all the time because then I'd be offered work all the time. But, you know. It's, um, it's a really lovely thing. I do what I can. I hope I do my best, but uh, I'm not a perfect man. No. So do your congregation know that you don't believe in the resurrection or the virgin? I do believe in them. Yes, of course, but not actually believe in them. Do, do they know that? Well, I don't make a point. Because, I mean, presumably quite a lot of them do believe in those things. I mean, I really believe in them. Well, yes, I should imagine some of the older and more traditional members might do, yes. Yeah, so does that put you in a slightly awkward position as a vicar at all? Well, um, I just mean in the sense that you're up there in the pulpit preaching, but you don't actually believe in it, whereas they already do. I mean, really, maybe it should be the other way around. You know, a bit. I, I just mean, you know, what is it that you're actually preaching to them? Um, so why is it that all churches face east at one end? I don't know. Right. And you've got um fantastic uh, scene with Olivia Coleman. Well, I suppose, uh, I suppose I really ought to be going. Uh, sit here all day drinking tea. Would you like another no, cup? No, no, thank you. Uh, will we be seeing you at the Seventies evening this evening? I'm afraid it's not really John's thing. No. Hmm? no. He's much happier at home in the garage with his tanks. Yeah. Oh, right, right. We'll be there at half past six. Oh, right. Oh, oh good. Well, I, I am pleased. Um, I don't think it actually starts until 7.30. We'll be there at half past six. Right, good. Well, um, we'll see you later then. Oh, well, I mean, I think that may be. I've always thought, and I thought at the time, that it was Olivia's first television thing, because I did things with her afterwards 
you may have heard, I did things with her and David Mitchell and Robert Webb. They did a, we did a pilot show for, for Channel 4 that never got shown, uh, and she was in that. But uh, but that, you, you snogged her in um, look uh, look did. around you didn't you French kissed. Let's mm. <laughs> not just snog. Let's not just go down the road of snog. French <laughs> kiss tongues. Unbelievable. You... In the days of COVID, this would never happen. But luckily, we were before then. And and in order to get those sort of scenes, they you do it a lot. I was going to say, did so... you fluff deliberately? Well, <laughs> no, we just had to do it for about three hours. Good God. We were both, our lips were sore. <laughs> well, you know, it was really weird. It's very interesting. I'm, do you know, I was going to talk about that scene, not for that reason, not for the fact that I, um, I snogged Olivia, who is one of the most, I mean, it was absolutely clear from the first moment, first day of doing that with, with her, that she was, you know, Every now and again, you come across somebody in, in your career and you go, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, you are so good. You are just great. Ellie White is an actress that I think, I, first time I came across her, I thought, oh, my word. She's brilliant. I mean, she's not that famous yet, mm-hmm. but she will, mm-hmm. she will be. She will mm-hmm. be. Emma Thompson, when I worked with her when she was a student, it, it was absolutely blindingly obvious that she was going to one day win an Oscar. And I think uh, the same is true of Olivia. Did even did you see her her TV show in the in the eighties though Thompson? Yeah. Did, did you yeah, did you still the, think it after seeing that? Because <laughs> I did. A... <laughs> Do you know there are quite funny sketches in it? You uh, should go back and look at it again. There okay. are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I will yeah. Um, Surprisingly funny. There's something that I want to nail here because it's it's uh, what do you call it? An urban legend. The whole Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles thing. You originally delivered that line didn't I was you? the first person to say that line yes in, yes in, in history on radioactive yeah it's mm. bizarre isn't it and we only really had this cleared up recently not that we were ever pursuing it mm. because we all assumed when the script came in uh, and again there's a connection between this and the goons because doing radioactive was very we did it at the Paris studios where a lot of the goon shows were recorded yes mm. so there was I've I always felt their presence it's really strange. And a lot of what we did was you would turn up and you would get the script. I mean, as a, as a performer in it, rather than one of the main writers, I would turn up and get the script uh, at one o'clock on the day of the recording. We would sit in a room and read it. You'd mark the script. You'd read through it. You'd get a few notes. You'd then go and read through it on the microphone and they'd put in sound effects. Then you'd do a dress rehearsal of it and then you do it in front of an audience. So quite often, when you're performing those sketches, you've only read them out loud three times. Yeah. And, I, and I know that's the case with, with the goons as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, you can hear it again and again and again, where in fact the jokes are almost taking them by surprise. And actually, I listen back to Radioactive, and I can tell the same thing is happening with us, that I'm, that I'm reading the joke and getting it as I read it, you know, and, and therefore delivering it's all happening incredibly quickly and it's incredibly spontaneous. Uh, and, you know, I, when I got that script and they said, oh, there's a part here of a, you know, a, a agent, manager, music agent. Yeah, Mike, you play that. And I said, mm. what sort of thing? And they said, like, you know, at the time, our manager was uh, Harvey Goldstein. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, he was, was huge. Yes. Em- empresario. Yes. And I don't know how he ended up as our manager, but anyway... Uh, it was quite good fun. He, so I basically did an impression of him, you know, just a sort of a bumptious, you know, like loud, you know, no, 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 you don't want that. No, I'll tell you what, here, look, I don't, I, here, I've got an idea. What you need is you need new drummer. Well, you know, we could get, uh, we get Ringo Starr, he's a good drummer. I said, oh, well, yeah, all right, yeah, no, well, people might, you know, some people say Ringo Starr's not the best drummer in the world. I mean, he might not have even been the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> uh, that, that's it, that's the joke. Now, yeah. when I first read that, and I know it was written by Jeffrey Perkins. When he, when I first read that, and when we all first looked at that, we thought that he'd nicked it. We thought it was a line that he was sort of quoting. It was so familiar. It felt familiar. Yeah. Mm. Do you know, it felt like a joke that would have been done before. And and in a way, I suppose that's the genius of writing a brilliant joke, is that people assume they've heard it before because it just you go somebody must have said that. 
And that's what's happened with that line. Well, I've got a feeling, I've got a feeling, I might be wrong here, that it's only gained currency in the last sort of decade, 15 years, you know, the, the Twitter generation. Maybe, I yes. Guess. And then you um, would you would automatically attribute it to Lenin, wouldn't you? Or, or you know, it sounds like the sort of thing that he would say. Then people did research on it to see if the Beatles had ever said it, and there is no evidence at all. And uh, and the, the only reference that can be found is in radioactive in about 1982. Amazing. It's it's not true anyway because he's a great drummer. He's the best. Great drummer. drummer. Um, a brilliant but, drummer. Yeah. Because Jeffrey Perkins has been dead. Sadly, what is it? 10, 12 years now. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at least twelve, I think. Um, did anyone, to your knowledge, anyone actually ask him where he got it from? No, no. He no. died before that. In a way, that's as yeah. you say that it maybe is more recent than yes. it's happened because yeah, yeah. you know no it. it I don't think we any of us ever thought about the line again. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And whenever you were, well, since then, until now, until recently, if I heard that line, I went, oh, yeah, yeah we did that in Radioactive. Jeffrey nicked that line, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he didn't. He wrote it. We've had, Since we found the handwritten script, uh, Angus has all these things on, on file, and uh, he's found Jeffrey's handwritten script with the joke in it. So there you go. I think, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And and in the last for the last eighteen months, you've been doing a podcast. My time capsule. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been really good fun. I I enjoy doing it, and I enjoy doing it so much that I've sort of become a bit obsessed with it. I I spend all my spare time working on it. All my spare time, I never meet anybody without saying, "Oh, great, you should come on my podcast." You know. Dan Snow the other night I met at a party and before I think I'd even introduced myself I was saying you should come on my podcast <laughs> you know, it, so I must be a pain in the bloody ass I think but actually amazingly nearly everybody says yes and I have had the most extraordinary group of people mm. I mean because the whole premise of the podcast if, if you if people haven't heard it is that I talk to people about five things from any time in their life and anything at all in fact from their life that they would pick as the thing to preserve in a time capsule. Then they pick four things that they love, that they really would love to have again, or, you know, they, they treasure. But they also have to pick one thing that they regret and they'd like to get rid of. And then we put those in the time capsule. We talk about it, and that's all we do. Now, I thought when I started this podcast that it would be, um, it would be a comedy thing, that I would talk to lots of friends of my friends, and they would pick funny things that had funny anecdotes attached to them. Mm. And we'd, we'd go through a whole series of, uh, well, a reason I've chosen that, because a very funny thing happened, and, and that's what I'd get. Mm. I very rarely get that. Quite often I get, you know, um, we're going to have to pause for a moment here because, you know, we need to pull ourselves together. Mm. People mm. tell me things that are just astonishing. I mean, and I, the, uh, quite often I'm talking to people I know or people I've worked with, at least. So um, I've, I've spoken to a lot of friends, and every one of them has told me something that I've found a complete revelation about them. Mm. Uh, and I've also enjoyed the process of very quickly, you have to learn this with a podcast, you'll agree with me, that um, you have to learn the ability to listen, which not everybody has, and mm. I certainly didn't have it. You know, I'm not a listener. I wasn't a listener. And now I love listening. It's I feel a bit odd doing all the talking on this, but I'm aware that in a way, you know, that's my role in this. Yes. This, you know, this recording. It's up to me to try and tell you things. Hopefully, that will entertain you. But um, but I love sitting and listening to people, and I love it when they get to the point where you think it might be over, or they finish telling you about it. And if you leave it, if you just leave that silence they pick it up again. And it's quite often those moments where it becomes astonishing. Mm, yeah. So, Mike, I know that you were you were born sort of the fag end of the 50s, really. Yeah. Um, so you obviously wouldn't have heard the goons when they went out, but no. what was your introduction to them? Oh, always through your parents, these things are, aren't they, really? And they, weren't, they weren't even repeated on the radio. So you mm. owned a record of them. That's what would happen. My house had about... About 10 goon records in it. But I, I think that um, I had a friend at that time, Francis Baldwin, who was the son of my father's boss, who we used to spend a lot of time together, and we used to go on holidays together. And we both loved uh, 
both loved the goons and we would sit and do them like everybody at that age i think yeah. you'd sit and do the voices you know you or you do whole sections of the the script i, I do remember actually putting on a show uh for my parents with him mm -hmm. you know that sort of you know sunday afternoon they'd had a drink and uh, and we said we, we're going to do a show so we did the show and the show consisted of us basically doing most of of this episode that we can talk about and and then a little bit of Pete and Dud. Okay. You know. yeah. yeah. So, you know, but again, not very good. It was okay. And that was my introduction to... Uh, I didn't really enter the world of sketches again until I auditioned for Angus Deaton when I was a student. And he said, you want to come to Edinburgh and do the review? And I said, what's a review? And he said, mm. it's like sketches, like Python. And I went, oh, right, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I could do that. It's it, What's funny is that... Uh, I sort of listened to it again, knowing I was going to do this. You know, I'd be daft not to, mm. to not entirely rely on my my memory from uh, childhood because I haven't really heard it for, for, for maybe fifty years. Tales of Men's Shirts: A Story of Down Under. It's a beautiful episode. It's a, it's extremely well performed. I think it has all the elements of the goons that that you'd love. All the ones that every other episode that I've listened to had bits of it, but never quite in the in the in the packed in way that this episode has. That that it has all the them giggling at each other, laughing at jokes, slightly improvising, getting jokes wrong, just messing about a bit, and then astonishing performances by by Sellers, just amazing. I yep. mean, unbelievable performances, just little gems. The voices that he did, that you you have to concentrate quite hard to catch every part he's playing, that he, he's that adaptable. You think is that him or is that you know? Well, yeah, bring someone else in. Yeah, because I used to when I first listened to the Goons, I, for for the first few weeks of listening to it, I used to think that the announcer Greenslade was Sellers, or Sellers was yeah. the announcer. Uh, <laughs> obviously, Harry Seacombe, his voice is so distinctive. You could because he plays a German in this in this episode. He does, as well. doesn't he? <laughs> But, yeah, um, Nettie Segan. Nettie Segan with a very slight accent. Yes. Very slight. But basically, Jim, hello. Ha-ha. Yes, I am a German now. V. He says V rather than we. That's yeah. about as far as it goes. That's it. This was obviously, this was um, Tales of Men's Shirts, which was on the Best of the Goon Shows number two LP. Yeah. Uh, which was released late 1960. So it was, it was about six, seven months after the, the Goon Show ended. And this, the Tales of Men's Shirts itself was from from the last series, and it was uh, episode two. And it was actually there was only what four episodes after this before the, the show ended for good. Um, wow. So it was broadcast the last day of the fifties, right? Uh, which was the thirty first of December fifty nine. Uh, my B parents would have bought the record when it came out, so it was in our house. So as I grew up, it was it was one of those things that they would they would put on and sit and laugh at. Here's the side. Stand by your memoirs. Holy officer. All present and correct, sir. Thin. <laughs> Thank you and thin. Right? At ease, man. Gentlemen, all you officers have been selected because of your high standard of intelligence. You sure are not? <laughs> Someone has blundered. <laughs> 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 Private, I've got bad news. Private, I'm a captain. That's the bad news. Yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of in my bones, really, that it's, it's funny. And, and, it, and I, listening back to it, I'm absolutely astonished at how many lines in it run right through my life that I repeat them all the time that I say these lines and people look at me sometimes as if I'm, as if I'm slightly mad, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm constantly saying, right, I must write my memoirs, you know, and I, I, people look at, what? Yes. Because that runs right through this sketch. I mean, it runs through lots of them, but they do it a lot in this, in this episode. You know, I must write my memoirs. I said to Alan Brooke, you great twit, you. you know, and it just, over and over again, they do it. But I say, I just will say that 
in in my life you know i just tell you this purely coincidentally the last episode that i recorded mm-hmm. was about a goon show from 1957 so from about two and a half years before tales of men's shirts was recorded um and the episode is a is one called ill met by goonlight obviously based on, right, the, yeah. on, on, on the, the film yeah now the plot of ill met by goonlight they discuss alan brooks memoirs or his his biography <laughs> they yeah. there, there's a scene where william is a cockney who then turns up as a german right um it's set during the war and it's set uh, during a dangerous mission so oh. there's so many similarities um although ill met by goonlight the show is a lot more structured and, and right. a lot a lot less loose shall we say yeah because you'll have if you got this lp if your parents had this lp then you would have listened to the scarlet capsule on the other yes. side i guess yeah. now um now that was based on the the um show that was big at the time Quatermass in the pit yeah which uh, by the way next episode on covering scarlet capsule Right. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> coincidentally, purely coincidentally, and I mean, I love that the idea of the the speed. It's not this is not things written months in advance. Uh, this is written that week. That's I mean, without a doubt, I think that's how the goons worked. Because I know oh, that, yeah. that I know that with Radioactive, we did that. That Angus and Jeffrey would you know they'd have meetings about what the subject matter was going to be, but they would sit down at the beginning of the week and start writing the episode for that week's recording. So every episode is written in the week that it was performed. Yes. Uh, you know, apart from the songs, which were done in advance, but, you know, we would then partition them off into different shows. We wouldn't necessarily know what we were going to do. We just wrote some songs. But uh, the script, and I, I mean, I'm always amazed at the the, the amount of humour that they're able to churn out in a week. And the same with, with Milligan. What I like about this episode, though, is that it has that sort of sketch element to it. It suddenly completely switches into a different situation. You know, for example, you know, that, that was happy ending number one and now happy ending number two right at the mm-hmm. end. Yep. Uh, you know, and then you go into this other thing where um, where where Peter Sellers is doing, uh, um, he sounds like Eleanor Bron. <laughs> he does. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It's a really, a really sexy woman's voice that he does. Hello, darling. Mm. And you just—it's just such a beautiful little sketch. I love it. Spike's done that uh, before in a few shows, and I think it's a case of—it's—it's it's two things. I think one is that the show's running slightly too short, so it's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's a similar. I always compare it to that episode. I don't, I don't know if you like The Simpsons or not, but there's yeah. um, there's an episode of The Simpsons which ran slightly short, and they tacked on this little clip of Ned Flanders. Hens love roosters, geese love ganders. Not me. Everyone who counts loves Ned Flanders. <laughs> Knock that off, you two. It's time for church. We're not going to church today. <gasps> what? You give me one good reason. It's Saturday. <laughs> Oakley dokely do. Hens love roosters. Geese love ganders. Everyone else loves Ned just because the show was running slightly short there's a handful of goon shows uh where they do have that sort of second ending credits. oh you can see that Ed, when you go into queue and all those sort of oh yeah what are we going to do now yeah yeah what we're we going to do now uh, and again that is um that's sort of an element of what he does but I'm, I'm you can see that in this thing i mean i'm sure it starts that way and ends that way because it starts with the you know uh, um if you i got monkeys on the knees if you got monkeys on the knees just um just say the word thing and there are only three and six a box you know and it's a, you know I, one morning i woke up i had monkeys on the knees and <laughs> it, it just it's it's a ridiculous sketch Yes. Uh, but it's it takes up you know a minute and a half at the beginning, and again I think that is that is him filling. I've had because I I've often said that Spike looked for excuses to have long drawn out sound effect sequences, mm. like like someone walk so someone's knocking at the door of a lighthouse, so you've got the person yeah. walking from the top of the lighthouse down all those stairs, and it takes about yes. a, a minute, and then and then walking back up again. And that, yeah. you know, that saves them having to it's write. It's funny, decks. though. It's but it's <laughs> funny. It is funny. There are uh, echoes of that. There's um, is it taxi? I think yeah. In taxi, mm. there's a bit where a man sues the taxi firm 
because he says he's been uh, he was knocked down by one of the taxi cabs and now he's you know uh, been unable to walk since needs operations and he needs the money so he sues a taxi firm and they take him to court and Judd Hirsch whoever the Hirsch Judd Hirsch finally says he says your honor this man is a fraud I, I can prove this man is a fraud watch and he grabs the man in his wheelchair and he pushes him through the doors of the um of the court and you hear it go man go and all over the top of it is it goes on for ages and they all just stand there and then he says I rest my case and, and it, it, it it's a brilliant pause and I you know I, sometimes I think that that having the nerve to hold a joke I admire those those you know I, it's not just filling if it was just filling you'd you'd be bored with it but it yes it's it's um it's brilliant stuff uh, they yeah they had they had a producer back in the mid mid early to sort of mid 50s called Peter Eaton who was very very good as a producer but he was very he's quite strict he had that sort of military hmm. background you know and he instilled yeah. he instilled discipline in them and, and so it's that sort of because everything the, that Milligan would hate oh yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and 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 Sykes was writing a lot of those shows as well so there was there was quite a lot of structure to them and there was a I won't say there was a, a, a strong plot running through each of them but you know there was there tended to be a beginning a middle and an end of, of sorts and there wouldn't be a lot of kind of what you would take as ad-libbing yeah humor's ad-libbing whereas by the time we've got to 1959 series 10 they've got a producer who's very good but he kind of just lets them get on with it i think yeah and and they're so they're so used to it and who would that now. be would that be dennis main wilson he was their first producer he was their ah. first one. um he he left he he was a by his own admission he wasn't the best producer for them so he left and was replaced by peter reason uh, so uh, the, la the, the last producer is, is a gentleman called John Browell, who was working on, I think he was involved with the sound effects. Right. Uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, well, you'd need, you, uh, you need a good, the Foley stuff, the, the sound effects work on, yes. on a comedy show is absolutely crucial. We, we always used to ask for the same person to do ours because it, it's part of the comedy. Yes. You, it needs to be timed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's absolutely. very important. So, I mean, you see how they would then respect him as a producer. I've, I've met Dennis Main Wilson a number of times. And, oh, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. He was a very sweet, shy, sort of quiet little man, very sort of quite, quite proper, very gentle, light, light voice. Yes. Hello. Hello, Dennis Main Wilson. <laughs> hello. Hello. How are you? And, and uh, always said hello to people and, you know, <laughs> at Christmas parties, I remember, always targeting him because... You know, I was very aware as a young comedian going mm. into this thing. I, I mean, I knew the history of, of radio comedy. Uh, I'd, I'd listened to a lot of it. And uh, and then to be involved in it, to be part of it. And now, strangely, to be part of that history. I often go for auditions for things and somebody in their 40s will say, hello, uh, you won't know this, but when I was at school and I go, oh, right, okay, yeah, you know. Mm. And uh, and mm. it's lovely that they mm. they have a fondness for it after all this time. But I felt that way with the goons. So I mean, I, Milligan was at, at a number of these parties I went to, and I I only once had the nerve to walk up and talk to him, you know, because it it, it just was overwhelming, really. Uh, I, I've met uh, Michael Benteen, okay, as well yep. a couple of times, and I know I've worked with um, with Harry Seacombe's son number of times andrew yeah uh, mm -hmm. yeah uh, and he was a just a most lovely man and you, you can see how he would be just like his father but uh, yes. it's, a, it's it's brilliant you know it's really brilliant and then there's a thing at the paris studios when we went i remember when i first the first christmas party i went to for blind entertainment this is in a day when the bbc were allowed to throw parties mm. and they could have have everybody there and uh, and provide a lot of drink and uh, so you would turn up for the Christmas party for the light entertainment department of the radio station. Yeah. And it was at the Paris studios and you'd go there at about midday. <clears throat> I quite often ended up, well, on two occasions, I ended up uh, being woken up at three o'clock in the morning in the sidings at Hastings station <laughs> because, because I'd fallen asleep on the train. Everybody got unbelievably drunk every christmas it was a joyous thing yes uh, and and that was 
that's you know the list of names that I could give you that were at those parties. Mm. Uh, it's it's astonishing. So I I loved them as you can imagine, particularly as if you know if you're the young boy, you're the new boy, and then these icons are coming up and saying, "Oh, I love your program. Oh, really great. Yeah, I love that. It's really funny." And you think, "Wow." Dennis Main Wilson, I remember saying, oh, I listen to Radioactive all the time. It's so good. It's so inventive. You think, oh, my word. Mm. Oh, this is the man who, you know, has that connection way back to this thing that I adore. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. What did you say to Spike? And what did he say to you? Uh, do you know, I said to Spike, I had an idea for a program, but it's, mm. it, it basically involves you. It's about you. And he said, he said, well, no, of course, of course it would be. Yep. <laughs> you know, everything's about me. And I said, no, that is the, that is the program. And I tried to pitch an idea to him, which was that I was going to go around and interview everybody involved in comedy, the whole world of comedy. Right. So uh, if I could get hold of really famous American comedians, you know, that I would talk to everybody, you know, from John Cleese and all the way. And, and they would all claim, I'd get them all to say that the thing that they'd done, that it was the most famous thing that they'd done, was basically an idea that Spike had given them. Okay. And and that was the idea of the program, that you would you would say, you know, so I'd be talking to Cleese and he'd say, well, yeah, we're we'd, we'd doing this. We didn't know what to do. We did this thing where we had a sketch for us walking down uh, by Whitehall. And uh, I remember Spike was there that day and he said, well, why don't you do a sort of a silly, like this, sort of a silly walk thing. And, uh, and that's how that all came about. And then you cut back to Spike and he would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because, you know, I mean, they never quite did it the way I wanted it to be done. So you'd create a completely false history right. of comedy. That's a great idea. And he would be at the centre of it all. And he did like the idea. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I pursued it again years later when I was working at Granada Television. I tried to persuade them and we got very close, very close to doing it. And he'd yeah. agreed to do it. And then just at the last minute, you know, yeah. funding or something. But mm. they never did it, you know. Mm. But I think it would be a brilliant program to have. Too late now. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking uh, of Cleese, Tales of Men Shirts was yeah. was the, was one of the small handful of goon shows that was remade for television. Um, oh, really? Thames TV, nineteen sixty-eight. They got the the three of them back. Yeah. Um, didn't really work. They just seemed a little bit too. How do I put this? Too pleased with themselves. I don't know, it's hard yeah. to describe. But yeah, the, the, the films of the last goon show ever and those sort of things, they're a bit self-indulgent. Yeah. Yes, think. they are. Um, but but uh, Tales of Men shirts that they did on Thames TV, uh, the announcer was John Cleese. Um, really? And, and look, look, Cleese is, is no slouch as a comic presence, no. but but he's 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 no Wallace Greenslade, and he's 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 a he's he's rather too detached and cool to be a yeah. suitable uh, substitute for Greenslade. So he's, mm -hmm. not, he's not like a stooge, a comic stooge, no. like Greenslade was. Ned and his party made their way to the great German chemical works at Schatz. Oh, God. By using the shortwave cardboard secret horsehair and mattress telephone, they were able to contact London by speech. Hello. Hello, Roger. Over, Roger. Over you, Roger. Under and over and up and over and up. <laughs> and the other sort of Python connection to Tales of Men's shirts, by the way, just want to think on. Uh, Michael Palin chose Tales of Men's Shirts as one of the tracks on his 1979 Desert Island Discs uh, uh, appearance. Brilliant. So there you go. <laughs> well, of course. But um, I, one of the things that I hope it still exists, uh, I can't imagine that the BBC would have got rid of it, although uh, saying that, they got rid of most of uh, not only, but also, and mm. Pete and Dutt and all those, you know, just it's astonishing, the history of yes. the things that the BBC have thrown away. When I, the very first time I went to the Christmas BBC party at, in, the, um, in the Paris studios, they said to us, can you all sign this book? So we did. I signed my name on the book. And then about six months later, at the entrance to the Paris studios, they put up this great big glass uh, well, wall plaque, really, I mm. suppose. It was huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it covered one wall. And on it were all the signatures of the people who'd been to that year's Christmas party. And that included, you know, uh, Roy Hard and uh, Milligan and quite a number of the, of the Python team mm -hmm. and all the goodies. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Barry Cryer and going back, you know, I mean, I think, um, oh, my brain's going. But who's, 
So, um, hello, playmates. Who's that? Um, uh, you know, uh, oh, Char- glorious Char- Charlie thing. Drake? No, not Charlie Drake. No, no, no. Busy B, Busy B, saying Busy B. Arthur Askey. Doesn't matter. Arthur no. Askey. Arthur Askey is on this thing. So you go, you know, the list of people, the, the length of, of time that it covered yes. for radio comedy. And there on it was my name. I'd written in this book and they'd etched it on. And you think, oh. we'd only done one. We'd done one series. And you think, wow, to be on that, uh, up there as a name from Light Entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I was, it was amazing. And every year we went to this party, I would go up to it and find it. Or every time I ever worked to the, the Paris studios, I would find it and just have a little look and look at the names around me and think, wow. I was, uh, I was about four away from Millican. You know, and you go, God, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. And then when the Paris Studios had sold it and knocked it down, they took that plaque and put it at the entrance to the light entertainment department in the at the radio. So I hope it's still there somewhere. Oh, good. It's. I think I said right at the beginning. It's. It's undeniable that without the goons, you wouldn't have Big Train. No. You. You wouldn't have. You know, the IT crowd. Mm-hmm. These things would not have happened. It, it just wouldn't. It set the tone for how British comedy was after the war. And that tone has remained. I think it's quite extraordinary, the effects that the goons had. That licence to be silly and yet at the same time clever. Yes, yeah. And that that runs right through British comedy. With this show, with the Tales of Men shirts, there's a line where Milligan says about a prisoner of war camp. A prison was full of British officers who had sworn to die rather than be captured. It was winter when we arrived. And the, the reaction of the audience is 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 wonderful at that moment, isn't it? Yes. You can hear they slowly gather. They they yes. slowly get what has been said, and yeah. and actually it is a radical view. That whole thing of you know, I said to Adam Brook, "You great twit, you all those sort of things." These are these were the sort of icons, and they'd been, you know, fifteen years or twenty years earlier, or fifteen years earlier, they were the generals who'd fought the war. You know, these are the to to then be criticising them. It wasn't done in English society. It wasn't done in British society. You didn't do that. And so it, it's a it's a real change. Yes. It's a sea change, I think, to have that happen. I mean, I, all that sort of, you know, how do you, how don't you, I went to a good school, me, I went to Eton. Yeah, how long were you there? About five minutes, I was delivering the groceries. So with with the goons, so you, this, this is the one that you've listened to the most. This episode is the one that you're most familiar it's with. It's absolutely yeah? the one that, that when I think back, it sticks out in my mind. And I think it's because we sort of, I don't know, I think my mate and I might have sort of tried to learn it once. We tried to learn the whole episode so we could perform it. I think that's what that performance was about, really. I don't think we did all of it, but we did large chunks of it. We memorised it. And so it, it it is in my head. It's still there. Once I've learned to joke, I... I I can re I can recall jokes almost as well as I can recall like nearly everybody can recall um, lyrics because they're set to music and you it's amazing how long you yes. can remember a lyric for you will a song will come on the radio that you will not have heard for for thirty five forty maybe fifty years and you join in so mm. it's a you know and yet you can you know I can play a part in a in a play and a week after I finished I, I have no idea what the lines are. Mm. They've mm. gone from my mind. But jokes, you know, uh, I, I, my friends are always saying, you're ridiculous, you always remember jokes. And I go, I do, I do like... It's because I think about them. I, I think about them and I think that sort of puts them in my mind. So There's a line that um, Angus wrote in a radioactive sketch. And we did a tour of radioactive quite recent, a couple of years ago, really just for the fun of it, really, just because mm. we went, you know, yeah, let's all get together and go around and have nice lunches and do these do this old material and see what happens and it, we had a brilliant time and we were talking about something and i said said to angus as we were driving through the countryside one day i said it's like that line that you did about um shagpal carpet and he went what line's that he said i can imagine what it is but what is it and i said well you know you were playing the sort of the boss of the radio station and you said i returned to the hotel room to find my wife and the hotel porter putting the shagpal carpet to the use after which it was presumably originally named <laughs> and he looked at me as if i was some sort of alien and said 
do you listen to the radio shows all the time? I said, no, I haven't heard that joke since we did it. And he said, how? How do you remember that? He said, I remember it now you say it, but how? I said, I don't know. But I absolutely have one of those brains that, you know, if I've heard a joke, it, it sort of stays, it sticks, which mm. is nice. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. I just want to give this the, the rough premise for this show because I want to talk about something because mm -hmm. the weird thing, listening to both this and the Scarlet Capsule again after so many years, and the Scarlet Capsule, it, the show itself is underpinned by an act, well, very structured source material, i.e., mm. the TV show Quatermass in the Pit, and it's yeah. got a it's got a, a proper beginning, middle, sort of, and and a satisfying payoff at the end. Okay, and right. Tales of Men's Shirts is far looser with a lot of mm. setups and gags, which are very funny. Um, but there's a what I would call a bit of coasting, and and it's like they know the ends in sight because it's four more shows and that's it. For the games. Yeah, 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 and yeah. also, I think, I think they were slightly alight when they were recording this. I think they'd had a few because I know, <laughs> I know they used to drink. <laughs> uh, yes, um, but the premise of this show essentially is that uh, it's it's 1942, and in Germany, the German High Command have come up with this plan to scupper the the Britishers. Uh, they got the scientists that have invented a a liquid chemical that, when applied to the tail of a military soldier's shirt. And when the, the wearer sits down, their body heat will cause a chemical reaction and there'll be a resultant explosion. Yeah. Okay. And the comedy is built around that. Okay. Now, the reason I wanted to mention that is because in the 1930s, there was an outbreak of exploding trousers in New Zealand. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've got a um, little clipping from a, a newspaper of the time from 1933, New Zealand newspaper. And the headline just kills me. The, the headline is trousers explode. Right? <laughs> Underneath, not their fault. Right? <laughs> and you think, is this a wind up? But, the, yeah. but the, I'll just read the first paragraph. It says, not long ago in a country township, a man's pair of trousers exploded with a loud report. <laughs> fortunately the owner was not in them at the time he was however in the same room and although dazed by the force of the explosion he was able to seize the garment which was hanging before the fire and hurl it out onto the grass outside there the trousers wow. smoldered with a series of minor detonations and what they put it down to <laughs> what they put it down to was um the farmers had been using herbicide uh yeah. weed, weed killer which was um, had sodium chlorate and it had sort of imbued or got imbued into the the, the fabric of the um, trousers, and 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 that causes that caused this spate of trouser explosions. Uh, uh, it strikes me as the sort of thing that um, that Spike Milligan may well have read and thought was extremely funny, and and like you say, yeah, jokes possibly. hang around in your head. You know that what what you find funny, particularly as a young man. You know, you look at his his memoirs of the war. Yes, you know, it, it, you can see that a lot of the jokes that he's they're playing on each other are the goons in construction. They're becoming they're they're he he obviously had this sort of what people would have called zany humor, you know, but um, but that was not uncommon. I think it just hadn't come through in in British culture at that point. Well, he was blown up in, during the war, wasn't he? And he, he yeah. got shell severe shell shock. Um, a mortar yeah. bomb exploded by his head. And and he for you know a long time after he was he was stammering, stuttering, shivering. He just was completely yeah. ruined by it, and um and was called a coward. And so, is it any wonder that in the goon shows the you know every, almost every episode has some form of explosion? Yeah. So you know, blue bottle gets deaded all the time. All the time. Um, yeah. People get killed. You know, and it's all comedy. It's all it's all mm. cartoon death and cartoon violence. But it, I think it all stems from that. It's, what I love, though, is is that where very simple things just take you by surprise and and therefore make you laugh. You know, uh, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What are you doing, Blue Bottle? I'm singing this map. I'm just mm. singing this map. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. you're singing away to what are you doing? What are you doing, Don't Say Land? I'm singing this map. And then I think that. That would have been a line that he would have written on its own, but then he sort of it goes on, and I, I, I sort of always feel with that bit after that where he says, you know, they're, they're, 
are the brown bits are the land, <laughs> and the blue bits with the little white lines on, they are the sea, <laughs> and the green bits, that's where the forest is. So what forest is not long, do da, do da. And that, I think, is is sort of. You can you can almost feel that that would have been uh, improvised in the first read through, or that mm-hmm. you know they would have done that sort of thing when they were messing about, and then it gets put in. You know, keep that in. That's funny. You know. Yeah, Sellers always used to bang on about how he didn't have a personality of his own, or he was like a hollow shell, and yeah, he, and he that's why he sort of absorbed these characters and played all these characters because he always used to say there isn't really a me i had it surgically removed and variations upon that and i always used to kind of think when i was younger when i was into the goons and you know i read every book that that was going every biography of sellers and milligan and whatnot and you know i i just i just i was like a gannet i just swallowed everything i could and i always used to think that sellers was probably not all wasn't all that great shakes as an improviser i think he was more than i gave him credit i think so i think so i mean i think once the fact that he's these characters are so i mean they're not just they're not just silly voices he's doing i mean they're they're incredibly well formed his characters really quickly i mean even if it's just you know playing a general and those sort of things it, it, it has the voice defines the person it's like i say that right at the end that doing you know you play a woman and you you can picture this woman mm. it's it's amazing that he can do that that quickly and i think maybe when he's saying you know i mean i i was a hollow vessel and it was only if people gave me things to do that i became interesting i think probably he was just like most people he was just you know normal but he had this ability to be all these other people which he developed you know he was perfect at interpreting Milligan's material. There's a there's a bit in this episode where he's talking about when he suddenly goes into, you know, as Blue Bottle goes into the. Don't touch me! I, I would I was trained in judo by the great Bert. Oh yes, and and that whole sequence there, it's suddenly it's really dramatic. Yes. That's what's so funny about it. He does it, and he genuinely means it, and you can see this person who is completely useless. But genuinely, I would teach you, you know, but and he describes what he's going to do, you know, counterbalancing the, the opponent. And and it's it's amazing stuff. I'm almost certain he's reading it. But what he does is he gives it a he gives it a weight. Yes. That it wouldn't necessarily have had. So that when, you know, he gets slapped around the face, you go, ah, yeah, wait till I see that twit. But, yeah. you know, it's just it's it's a brilliant payoff. Come on, you what do you have uh, Take a hand of me. Do you think you can take Bibbert alive? <laughs> Fix his Moriarty with hypnotic gaze. No <laughs> man. I was trained in judo by the great Bert, using the body as a counter pivot to displace the opponent. I used the great Bert's method of throwing the opponent to his death. Be warned, Moriarty. One false move and you die by Bert's method. Take that! <laughs> Where did I see that twit, Bert? Yeah, he was an amazing actor. And he doesn't. He doesn't get uh, Sellers. He, he doesn't get credit. I don't think. Uh, maybe now he, he's he, he is, but he was a fantastic actor. And he was a serious comedy actor. And I think yeah. if you look at his films, with the possible exception of a handful like. Um, later period Clouseau, most yeah. of the characters that Sellers played on film, they weren't, they weren't like Steve Martin in the jerk. They weren't overt comedy characters. They were, no. they tended to be either little men or, or quite serious men yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who, who were trying to repress inner panic a lot of the time, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. It's a great character to play. I mean, I have to say I'd love, I've always loved having that person, the person who has to pretend they're in charge. Yes. And to pre- pretend they know what's going on, but actually hasn't the faintest idea what's happening and they don't know what to do about anything. You know? I've, yeah. I've played that character in different ways. In, in different, I've played a character called Martin Brown, who was just an inadvertent idiot in Radioactive, who just didn't, it was just so sort of sweet and mm. gentle that mm. he didn't realise that he was, you know, getting things wrong. Well, 
I'm going to have to go, I'm afraid, shortly. Uh, so we ought to come to sort of some rum up. But I'm, I'm going to wrap up. I'm not doing pantomime this year, so I'm more free than I would normally because I'm going to spend my I spend my time now, too much time spent working on my podcast, which I really love doing. And I've got too many people lined up to talk to. So, yes, it's nice well, to do a bit of talking rather than listening, but I've enjoyed it. And but I, 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 I miss pantomime. And last year in pantomime, amazingly, we had a scene where we had to try and break into the giant's castle. And I said to them, well, why don't I hold up this piece of paper and say, this is my plan of attack. And then you say, it looks like a nail. And I say, no, it's attack. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> And there it is. There's a line from this very episode. Absolutely. And, uh, yep. and they all looked, they all went, that's a good joke. And I went, well, it's, yeah, but it's the goons. We can't do it. And they went, well, I've never heard it before. And of course I realized they were all much younger than me and not one of them had the faintest idea that I'd stolen it mm. and I could have got away with it, but no, I was going to give full credit <laughs> to the genius of Spike Milligan. Absolutely. Um, in terms of my time capsule, uh, yeah. Going from strength to strength, you're on about what 160 odd shows now. We are it? heading that way, yes. Well, I've, I've certainly recorded 170 odd, and I, I think we're on about 150. So I've got 20 people in the bank, as it were, right. which you know. But we're also this Christmas doing, like a lot of people do, we're doing a compilation of Christmas things. I'm in the process at the moment, while we record a couple of weeks before this goes out. Of, uh, of gathering together lots of people who've been in it and saying to them, tell me the thing that you'd put in a Christmas time capsule. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a sort of compilation of that. And uh, I, I spoke to the lovely Rory McGrath this morning and uh, I'm talking to somebody in a minute. It's, um, it's turned out to be far more rewarding in the sense of the things it's given me, in the sense of, uh, you know, the things I've learned from, from friends and from people I didn't know. You know, it's been really lovely. It's a slow process persuading people to do a podcast. They have to yes. develop a trust with it, yes. you know. But no, a couple of people that I've been trying for quite some time have, have finally, over the last few weeks, have said yes and have done it, which Great. is lovely. I've, yeah, Joe Pasquale, who I've been trying for a long time, very mm -hmm. difficult man to pin down. Danny John Jules from uh, Red yep. Dwarf, and uh, Sanjeev Bhaskar has done it. Harry Hill and uh, Dara O'Brien. Wow. So it's all been, you know. Wow. Uh, oh, fantastic. Lovely. Well, Mike, as I say, thank you so much for, for joining me today and a Merry Christmas to you. Yeah, and you. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, have a great Christmas. Please, if you get a moment over the Christmas break, to pop along to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a nice review. Uh, that would be a great present for me. <laughs> I'll be back uh, in between Christmas and New Year with uh, the second part of this special where we are covering the Scarlet Capture with another very special guest. Uh, until then, take care. Love you loads. Bye-bye. All right, all right. Maybe Ringo Starr wasn't the best drum in the world. <laughs> all right, maybe he wasn't the best drum in the Beatles, but he's a name. <laughs>